Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the CUHK Anthropology Podcast. Today, we have the privilege of talking to Dr. Venera Halikova, who's a lecturer in the department. Venera is a lecturer at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. She is a cultural anthropologist whose research explores the acts and articulation of identity, nationalism, and citizenship in two distinct contexts alternative medicine, and transnational migration. Halikova holds a PhD in anthropology from the University of Pittsburgh, USA, where she worked on examining the state policies on medical pluralism and the cultural politics of Ayurveda in North India. Her current project is focused on diverse experiences and practices of belonging among Indians in Hong Kong. Halikova investigates how Indians of different identities, languages, documented statuses, genders, and economic backgrounds participate in everyday life of Hong Kong and India. Hello, Venera. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tongyi. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, uh, we are very excited um, be- because we, we, we know that uh, you've joined the department about what, three, three over years ago now. Yeah, about three and a half now. Yep, that's well, right. We're, we're thrilled uh, because we want to know about your trajectory in anthropology and your life experiences. So perhaps we could start by you telling us, you know, what what and how you came upon anthropology. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll be happy to share um, um, when it all began. Although it was so long time ago that I don't even remember properly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm from Russia, but in Russia, when I graduated from high school, um, anthropology was not a very known discipline. And in fact, I, I don't think, I even heard the word anthropology before I arrived at a university. Um, uh, I think that was the name, the University for Social Sciences. Um, it was renamed a couple of times after that, so I don't quite remember the exact name. But I, I, and at that time, there was no online admissions. So you had to go physically to the university, to the admission hall. And there were all these wonderful posters from different departments trying to attract students. And I remember entering it and just looking everywhere. And then suddenly a voice called me. And and by voice, I'm not saying that there was in my head. There was, there was a man sitting to this big poster on um, anthropology. And he said, I think you have to join our department. And I was like, why me? What is this? <laughs> there, was, uh, there was quite a magical moment, to be honest, because um, I had always known that I wanted to do something related to, um, I guess now I can phrase it as cultural diversity or diversity of human experiences. I myself belong to a minority group in Russia. I grew up speaking two languages. Uh, commuting between um, two centers of um, different cultures. One is um, Moscow, cosmopolitan, but also influenced by Orthodox Christianity and atheism after communism. So it was quite an interesting mix in Moscow. Um, plus my 
my family comes from a place called Tatarstan, um, which is one of the um, republics within Russia, and it's a it's a Muslim uh, Tatar um, traditional Tatar area, historical. Um, so I I grew up being in Islam as well as in Orthodox Christianity. Uh, I grew up speaking different languages, thinking in different worldviews, I guess. Um, so I was always curious about different cultures. I also have to probably add that my name, Venera, means the planet Venus or the goddess Venus. Wow. So as a young kid, I was interested in two things, in um, astronomy, so mm. everything about space and stars and planets, but also everything about ancient Greek and ancient Roman and ancient Egypt philosophies and cultures. So for me, uh, I think I always knew that I wanted to do something related to that, but there was no word for me. Mm. Uh, so whenever my grandfather asked me, I would say, oh, probably I'll do cultural tourism or history. So I knew all these areas around. And then suddenly that voice, you know, who said, hey, I think you have to join our department. And I had no idea what department it was, so I went to the to the you know to the uh, the poster and the the table where all the booklets were uh, set up, and so I asked what anthropology was, and yeah, by the description of it, I felt it was it. So yeah, from that was two thousand and three, and I never changed my mind. I just continued doing <laughs> anthropology. That, that that's amazing it it was almost uh, like that had to happen this voice had to <laughs> boom out you know yeah uh, yeah it was uh, i don't think i can say strongly that i believe in fate mm-hmm. but it was very it was almost like a prophecy or something yeah it was very magical so so what made an impact in your early studies of anthropology i i suppose you were you were answering some you were looking for answers to your personal experiences, you know, as, as someone who's bicultural, hmm. you know, but what, 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 uh, what topics or what particular sub themes in anthropology, uh, inspired you in particular? Can you recall? Um, I, I'm not particularly sure that I was looking for some answers. Mm. Um, Maybe now I can analyze it that way. But at the moment, uh, when I was a student, I just felt this immense curiosity towards the world. And it was almost like insatiable hunger for... um, yeah, for stories, for for differences. And um, the way anthropology is structured in Russia or was structured in Russia at that time was quite different. Uh, we didn't have undergraduate program or master's program. It was a five-year integrated course. So I started majoring in anthropology right my, from my first year. And, and it was more, I guess... Russia at that time was more ethnographic than anthropological, if you know what I mean. So our courses were structured around areas and and different communities rather than... I mean, we also had 
courses on topics like I don't know, myth, myth and symbol or political uh, organization and structure or something like that. But we had to cover the whole world. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the qualifying exams that we gave at the end of the five years where you could, you would, you would standing next to a map, the world map, and your teachers would say, okay, Vinera, tell us about um, New Zealand. And like, who inhabited New Zealand when and how, which languages they spoke? What money did they use? And, oh, tell us about New Orleans. Okay, so this territory, what kind of uh, native uh, communities live there? So you had to be very fluent in ethnographic diversity. And, and I love that. So I, I studied everything from, wow. um, yeah, from Incas to, uh, I don't know, modern, Hadza tribe in Africa, and yeah, so that was um, that was that was part that I was really um, I was looking forward to every every week when I in, and when I went to. Uh, Thanks for sharing that, Venera. I I think uh, that is so interesting because obviously you've had anthropological training in in Russia, mm-hmm. and and so what what you are saying seems to sound like it was. More ethnology, right? Mm, uh, so this yeah. is very useful for our listeners, you know, our students to, to hear. Uh, you're giving us a contrast between, you know, perhaps how anthropology used to be practiced, mm. uh, and, and, uh, in, 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 in Russia and may, maybe even today. Uh, and, uh, what perhaps you are, how you're perhaps teaching it. You know, so maybe we can get into that since we are on this topic. Hmm. Um, so, what what is this contrast exactly? You you mentioned having to study peoples from you know different parts of the world and having very deep understanding of that. H- how is that different from the anthropology you teach at CUHK? Mm, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I I wouldn't say that it is necessarily different Hmm. let me put it this way so um because um what i described was just the initial stage of my training and then i i studied and and russia actually now is quite different as well so there is a strong um focus on theory and different aspects and and we I, i think we incorporate all the aspects of ethnology and anthropology now um, and then obviously with my training, I did my master's in India and then PhD in the United States. So I became heavily influenced by the North American school of teaching anthro- or of doing anthropology. Mm-hmm. And I think in my own teaching here at CUHK, I incorporate all of these uh, ideas uh, that I got from my teachers. Mm-hmm. So um, let me give you an example. So I... Let's say I teach a class on gender and culture. And for me, it is now equally important to talk about gender from the um, theoretical and conceptual point of view to cover um, issues related to how we understand gender. Um, but also, I love paying attention to little ethnographic details. And when I teach... I often 
you know, I just test my students' knowledge of the world as well. I want them to, you know, if we cover something, let's say we are reading about um, um, a small um, previously hunting and gathering society um, in in um, in the Philippines, right? So, and I say, okay, point me on the map where the Philippines are, right? Or or show me where, you know, this other community lives. So I want them to to be fluent mm. in reading maps, in understanding where where all these different countries and peoples live, because I think it's fundamentally important, right? Otherwise what I noticed in India and a little bit in America is that people can get a little bit lost. Yes. When it comes to the naming places. Uh, <laughs> so, and, and it, it, maybe there is nothing wrong with it. You know, like Indians know really well everything about South Asia, but they get a little bit uncomfortable when you ask them about, I don't know, Latin America, right? And that's very different to how I was trained because for me, everything was important. There was no unimportant place in the world. If you ask me as a first year undergraduate student in Russia where Tuvalu was, I could easily point on the map. Here it is, right? So I think I want to, um, you know, just pass on that passion for geography. The geography. And yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, to my students. Um, mm. So, yeah, we, I, we do talk, talk about maps <laughs> in small communities or large communities and where they live and what they do. Yeah, maybe that's the, that's the part that I took into mm. my teaching. That, that's all very interesting. Although, obviously, what you're suggesting is that there has been some kind of um, maybe evolution. I, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but the, the evolution uh, in the teaching of anthropology. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. Um, yeah. I can, <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say because mm. obviously you can critique ethnological approach mm. as well. And mm. this is why I feel many brilliant researchers in Russia mm. are, let me, let me put it this way, they're brilliant ethnologists mm. who know the world really well and mm. specific their, their, their specific regions, mm. but they get a little bit uncomfortable when it comes to theoretical um, conversations. Mm. Not all of them. They're, they're wonderful um, theorists as well. Mm. Um, but I think now there is a push to be... Because why theory is important, right? Mm. Because it, it, it helps us to understand humanity in itself mm. without those... Or what bring, brings all these differences together or, how, or to have some kind of a framework that you can apply as an anthropologist, I might be studying India, right? But there might be a way in which to look at everybody or, or make it relevant to somebody who is interested in Japan or somebody who is interested in uh, Chile or, 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 or something else, right? Ultimately, we have to be able to talk a common language. Mm. And I think focusing too much in ethnographic, eth ethnological details mm. can pull us apart and mm. we need some common ground. And this is what theory gives us, that, mm. that proper social or cultural anthropologist that we, you know, got from the, from the 
Britain, Europe, and, and North America. Mm. Well, well, thanks for clarifying this, uh, Venera. Yeah, I think you've very nicely uh, highlighted these different uh, aspects, uh, these different facets of anthropology, where you have ethnology, which is more descriptive on the one hand, and you have theory, which which seeks to, you know, perhaps explain and and you know and link up, you know, the descriptions of these very different uh, peoples in different places. Um, before we get too carried away with our <laughs> in-depth sure, yeah. um, theoretical discussion, let's let's get a bit more personal again. I'd like mm. you to maybe go back to tell us then um, about your own experience, how then your anthropology studies proceeded. So you studied a lot of ethnology, you greatly enjoyed it. How did you then... Pick a certain focus or how did a particular subject, you know, jump up at you, you know, mm. uh, to attract your attention? Maybe you can talk about that. Okay, great. Um, in the beginning, when I was, a, I think, a second year student or a third year undergraduate student, I was more interested in um, youth subcultures. So I was very interested in urban anthropology. And at that time, I realized there were a lot of uh, men and, and some women who were doing extreme sports, like extreme bicycle and skateboarding. And they were doing these crazy uh, backflips in the air uh, on, on uh, um, mountain bikes uh, and wow. participating in all this. Um, it, it, was, it was a very new trend in mm. Russia. And I was just absolutely curious about um, that aspect of, uh, you know, people being drawn into subcultures. And in my department, in addition to ethnology, there was a very strong influence of human etology. Etology is the study of human behavior, which um, uh, looks at um, uh, um, greater apes as well as um, kind of the evolutionary changes in human behavior to get insights into how people react uh, today. And etology is a, is a study that includes, let's say, issues of um, the influence of smell in, in, in human interaction or the influence of proximity, how closely people stand. So I, I had this teacher who was absolutely wonderful and I joined her lab and we did a lot of interesting studies like tying up some cotton pads uh, to uh, men's underpits, asking them mm. to sweat in them for three days. And then we will take that <laughs> cotton sweaty pads and ask a select group of women to sniff <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then give them photographs of men. So we're doing all this very interesting research on, um, on uh, sexual attraction, on aggression and, or aggressiveness and uh, and desire for risk. So as part of that uh, interest, I also began my anthropological studies by focusing on the extreme sports athletes right. who were doing, um, who I wanted to understand um, in terms of not only cultural, subcultural, um, uh, maybe codes and rituals that they do in specific language that they invent, but also in terms of this desire for risk and adrel adrenaline. So that was the beginning. And I, and I thought this is what I would be doing for the rest of my life because it was thrilling. I was this young girl showing up with, uh, I was also measuring their second, the index, 
the second and fourth finger because it had some correlation to the testosterone patterns. I don't, yeah, I don't quite remember now. Yeah, but it was, it was fascinating. And then me being me, when I said insatiable hunger for new knowledge and everything, I decided in addition to ethology, I would join what other, my other classmates doing. So some of my classmates were studying South Asia. Some other classmates were studying the Pacific region. So right. I decided to enroll in everything. I was the only student in my department who graduated with double uh, specialization because I, I was studying Hindi. I was studying Maori. I was studying migration in Polynesia, migration in, in South Asia. Yeah. So in some ways, I didn't choose anything. I just chose everything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to answer your question, how I ended up studying India, I would say here I have to talk about some broader historical and political economic factors. But because, before you yeah. get there, okay, sure. Vignetta, sorry. Sure. Um, tell us what you found about extreme sport athletes. So what, what actually motivates them to do such, you know, risky, um, you know, doing somersaults with their bikes? What do you recall? Uh, what were your findings then? Yeah, um, I honestly don't remember exactly mm. because I was considering multiple factors. Mm. And um, because I did proper participant observation, I also learned to do some of the tricks a little bit. And then, wow. yeah, it was, it was very risky. Some of my good friends, they got injured. I, I stayed with them in the hospitals. You know, it was, it was quite a, quite an interesting field work that I did. Um, and, and I think they all just did it for, it's just a, an expression of youth, expression mm. of new, newness. It was all, you know, like Russia was closed. Mm. Uh, for all these new trends. And then suddenly with the beginning of internet, with the beginning of uh, like borders opening up, this all young men and some women, they, they just wanted to have fun. And <laughs> this was their way of doing fun. Um, although I shouldn't really talk much because probably I need to read those two articles that I published a while ago as a student and, and remember and try to remember what uh, my conclusions were. But yeah, I think it was just... Um, it wasn't, it wasn't an anti-social behavior or, or, no. you know, there was also a very prominent theory at that time that youth subcultures is a type of escapism. Mm. So they try to escape the, you know, harsh realities. And, but, uh, I, I, I tried to argue against that. Um, yeah, I, I actually, created this new word uh, and I have to now translate from Russian into English because there's this word um, of um, basically the opposite of escape and they're like um, arrivals in the world. They just, they don't want to escape. They just want to experience the world at a 200%. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and of course uh, some people say that, People engage in such a risky behaviors because it it, it 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 is the danger that makes them feel alive. Yeah, but also the perception of risk is quite different. You know, mm. some of us consider um, ourselves risky when we mm. take financial decisions. Mm. You know, gambling or or playing at a stock market, but we would never jump, you know, on a on a on a mountain bike from a hill. But for those guys. 
jumping from a bike was not a risky behavior. They were in control. They knew their bodies really well, right? It was, it was, it was not a risk. They would never risk their money, right? Their risk perception was lying elsewhere. So what was risky for me was not risky for them. It was, it was just part of what they wanted to do with it. Then they could. They felt that they could. They felt yeah. that they could. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on, on to your South Asian explorations then. You were telling yeah. us about. Yeah. So actually, in all honesty, I, after I did this, I wanted to study the Pacific and, the, and, and specifically Polynesia and New Zealand. I was quite fascinated by the you know, cultures of uh, Maori. I, as I mentioned, I studied Maori language. I studied a little bit Hawaiian language as well. And I was just very interested by the ancient migration patterns and the contemporary uh, uh, movements and activism in this uh, small uh, Pacific nations. I mean, I shouldn't call New Zealand a small nation, but like a, a small island nations as well. Mm. Yeah. Um, but again, when you are from Russia, um, uh, trying to study New Zealand, it, it, it is kind of hard because there are no uh, proper... Um, connections in terms of either fellowships that you could use to go or even as simply as buying a ticket from Moscow to, uh, you know, to, to uh, Hawaii or to New Zealand was unimaginable, mm. right? Um, at the same time, the connections, political and cultural connections between Russia and India have been very strong, right? Had been strong and still are. Yes. Um, all the way from, you know, when India was fighting for independence, there were a lot of correspondence going on between Russian leaders and Indian leaders. And then um, we had schools in Russia, I mean, primary and secondary schools where Hindi was the first foreign language taught to kids, wow. not English, not wow. French, not German. Hindi was the wow. first foreign language taught to children. Yeah, we had tons of books from Russia, kids' books in particular, sent to India. Bollywood was one of the only foreign imports allowed. Uh, Im yeah, yeah, imports allowed in Russia, right? Hollywood bourgeois culture was obviously not welcome during the Soviet times. Um, so we all grew up watching Raj Kapoor movies and, uh, you know, my mom knew songs by heart. I wow. did. Yeah, uh, Russian ballet groups um, were sent to India. So there were a lot of cultural exchange and a number of specialists. So we had a very, very, and still have a, a strong school of Indian studies and amazing specialists who uh, speak excellent Tamil or Telugu or Bengali mm. or Marathi and yeah, they're, they're very good researchers, historians and anthropologists and folklore uh, specialists and all of that. So that's why I'm saying it was kind of the political economy of it and also the availability of knowledge um, mentors um, who helped me to make a decision. So when I was studying Hindi, my Hindi teacher uh, from India, who was a specialist in Russian literature, which was quite funny, uh, he told me about a fellowship uh, to do masters in India. So everything was falling into place with India and nothing was happening in my pursuit of doing studies in the Pacific. So yeah, I just went with the flow and, and, and yeah, decided to do a master's in India. So from then onward, I just got committed to this region. Right. And so when you went to India, 
um, had you then decided on a topic, or was it again uh, in in your up until now in 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 your style of intellectual exploration, were you doing everything? I yeah, so I guess a little bit of both. I was doing um, when I was in Russia. My my thesis was on the small communities, the pre Dravidian groups in South Asia. So those who formerly were called hunters and gatherers, but they were not now settled by the government. So I was looking at the government policies for resettlement of these indigenous communities. And that was my dissertation topic in Russia. So when I arrived in India to do my master's, I wanted to actually go to those communities and see them. Are are those communities, were those communities at the time still... Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, they're a small community and they're, they're, um, so the government protects them or claims to protect them and their way of life. Although, um, I guess we shouldn't touch, touch the topic of this. Uh, but, but yeah, there are these communities. Most of them are, are pushed to the margins of, um, let's say some forests and sanctuaries, um, some of them, they're, they're very, very small and scattered all over India. Um, I think the official terminology for them now is the particularly vulnerable tribal groups, mm. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and during my master's, I wanted to study them and wanted to study the government politics uh, or policies towards them. But, uh, I got assigned a supervisor. I couldn't choose him. I got assigned a supervisor who was a med- medical anthropologist. And he right. gave me a topic, which I had to study. Mm-hmm. We ended up going to one of these particularly vulnerable tribal groups. And I spent a month in a tribal um, area. But now I had to study medical diversity, which at that time, I had no interest whatsoever. I was very rebellious. I didn't want to do what I was told to do. I wanted to study something else. But I realized that it was a fantastic topic. I loved it. People telling me stories about porcupine needles using for magic and healing and exorcism and all these different portions and herbs that they were collecting and using. It was, it was fantastic. I loved it. Um, so I guess in some ways, I again, I didn't choose it. Somebody else told me, you better study medical anthropology. But yeah, I just went with the flow. I think you can characterize my whole, uh, you know, encounter or my, my whole trajectory in anthropology as, as just, you know, going with the flow. Uh, and, and I think, yeah, yeah, I guess, uh, and plus, I, I do in, indeed enjoy everything. So I, I guess it's easy to convince me to study something like medicine. That's yeah. important. That's also fascinating. So what you're talking about is you eventually did medical anthropology among or the medical anthropology of, of uh, hunter and gathering tribes. Yeah, formerly they were not hunting anymore um, because the government tried to use all these different stimulus to um, uh, stimuli to settle them and make them and, and do um, encourage them to do farming, uh, which was very hard, I guess, 
to convince a hunter and gatherer to do farming forcefully. Yeah, it was a very heartbreaking um, to be there and see the amount of poverty and, you know, um, just really broken lives uh, of people who didn't know how to handle this newness that um, was forced upon them. Yeah, um, and and many of my classmates uh, have returned to that community um, when they started doing PhD and tried to help them as well. I stay connected with a few persons from there too. Yeah, but but yeah, I was doing. I started doing medical anthropology among this community. Right, right, yeah. and um, and and from there you proceeded. Well, to, to to the United States, right? Um, uh, still, still pursuing medical anthropology. That's um, right. Yeah. Um, per- perhaps you can describe that experience then, in terms of you know, was there then a change in the focus of your research? So you were doing uh, medical anthropology in South Asia and in India in particular, and among marginalized groups and so when you went to the united states how did the changing i guess the the changing social environment you know change the potentially change your interests and your research interests yeah thank you um i think when i was in the united states i knew very well what i wanted to study but i didn't know where and i'm saying that because um even though I enjoyed my field work among this particularly vulnerable tribal group um, in India, I didn't speak the language. So I had to work with my uh, some of my classmates who uh, acted as uh, translator interpreters. And it was very frustrating. You know, like you ask a question and you're, uh, the person you talk to speaks for 20 minutes and then you get a three-minute translation of that. Right. Right. So I was very – because they spoke um, the language of the state. Uh, it was South India, so they spoke Telugu. Uh, and, I, I, and I didn't speak Telugu because I studied Hindi. So when I arrived in the United States, I knew that I wanted to study medical pluralism and I knew that I wanted to be focused somewhere which is north. Uh, but I, I, I didn't have a clear understanding of a, of a place. So I think for the first two or three years, I struggled finding a place to do research. I think first two years. Um, and then I, I got lucky because my um, doctoral uh, advisor um he's american but he grew up in india in a in a mountainous uh, state in the himalayas in Uttarakhand. so that was his home and he told me that there was a language school at that place uh to do advanced hindi studies um, and i went there for summer and i absolutely loved it it was amazing it's such a different place it's on top of the world you're very close to i don't know gods and sky and the snow peaks um and and i just stayed there yeah i, I fell in love with the people um they they spoke Hindi. Some of them also I, they also speak regional dialects, but uh, all of them understood Hindi, so that was very easy for me. Uh, I could you know do my my field work uh, on my own without relying on translators, which was lovely. And yeah, and the place was uh, quite interesting. I think I also got lucky 
that when I was studying medical pluralism, so by medical pluralism, I mean different systems of medical knowledge, which is also recognized and supported by the state. And at that time, uh, that was 2014, the government of India just elected, or, or there was a new prime minister who got, whose party got um, elected, Narendra Modi. And when he came to power, he decided to create a separate ministry for alternative medicine. So India at that time was the only country in the world which had a separate ministry for health and let's say modern or biomedicine and then med- ministry for the alternative medicine. And I became instantly curious uh, about the kind of political and ideological logic um, or political reasoning behind supporting alternative medical views. Because as you know, um, in many parts of the world, the governments are actually banning alternative medicine, not allowing, uh, not issuing licenses, not creating any schools or curricula, right? Uh, we know um, very well the cases that happen to homeopathy in many European countries, right? Um, there's still a lot of countries where some, you know, some, some systems are not recognized. But in India, all the way from the before all the way to the colonial times and then and, and through the independence movement and the modern India, you have government supporting different kinds of medical knowledge. Um, and I was interested why. I was interested why would the government do that? And of course, it's a, it's a very difficult answer to give you in a couple of minutes because my whole dissertation was on that, right? Answering that question. So in some ways... Medical plurality met my interest in government policies um, and, and, and identity and nationalism. So I was looking at how this new government, new ideologies were fostering the move towards alternative medicine and why people also wanted to practice certain kinds of alternative medicine as it was related to their identities, as a manifestation about of their identities. Yeah, so I, I, I just got lucky that all of that coincided. And the state that I chose because I love the landscape and, you know, the mountains, it was the state where certain kinds of alternative medicine, yoga and Ayurveda, became instantly commercialized and branded mm. uh, and industrialized. So we have this uh, corporation that incorporated, uh, corporation which use the ideas of yoga and Ayurveda to mass produce medicine, mass produce food, and in turn into this massive uh, corporation uh, mm. of consumer goods, all the way from shampoos and creams using the label of Ayurveda. So for me, it was, it was just fascinating how industrialization, the nationalism, uh, and globalization in many ways shaped the renewed interest uh, in alternative medicine. Mm. Yeah. Would you not say, since you just mentioned that there was extensive government support from the colonial times of alternative medical traditions, would you not say then that what Modi did in 2014 was just a continuation of that history? 
Yes and no, because when I say that there were um, there was some support for alternative medicine during the colonial times, it wasn't um, it wasn't very um, it wasn't a hundred percent support. In some ways, the colonial government wanted to create um, to give to professionalize alternative practitioners, uh, especially Ayurveda. There was a college of Ayurveda established during colonial times, but within a few years, it was quickly closed. I think the colonial government itself was um, struggling uh, with, um, yeah, whether they wanted to support the indigenous medicine or not. And it was quite, I think every few years, there was a new change and a new vision. And then even the independent India, or when it was becoming independent, there was no one opinion among the politicians uh, at that time. Because, see, modern medicine also means you get, you get scientifically solid uh, way of making your population strong and healthy. Yes. So some... Uh, freedom fighters or independent uh, independence leaders, they wanted to abandon all superstitions and yes. all these indigenous practice, practices because they were interested in building a strong, healthy nation so, backed by science. But at the same time, there were politicians who wanted to um, break away from the colonial import of this English medicine. And this is how Biomedicine is known in, in, in Hindi, for example, Angrezi, Chikitsa, or Angrezi, Davaya, English medicines. Uh, so they wanted to get rid of the colonial import and, and, and promote the indigenous systems of knowledge. So you can't, you can't really say that it was black and white. It was all very messy. So alternative medicine was given some government support, but with a lot of struggle, with a lot of pushback. There were some practitioners uh, creating, uh, running huge national conferences, uh, lobbying for the for the recognition from the government, and some government didn't want to give it. So it, it's very hard to say in 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 a, in a definitive way whether Modi was continuing doing that or, or he came up with something new. Obviously, there was a century long history of all these debates happening in India. Um, yeah, but he he was the one who made several personal statements mm. about the, uh, the uh, I guess, efficacy and goodness of uh, yoga and Ayurveda. And in that way, it was different. Yeah. So I was looking into that. Tell me something that I'm, I'm quite curious about. You mentioned homeopathy, mm. which I believe is discovered by a German. Uh, That's right. How did homeopathy become so popular in India then? It's it's a wonderful question with a very long answer. Um, there are many theories that explain the popularity of homeopathy, but indeed, where homeopathy was um, created, invented, um, dis- uh, uh, formulated in in Germany uh, by Samuel Hahnemann, Hahnemann. but but um, it got to India. During the colonial times, as a as a medicine which was modern and Western, but not British and not colonial. I see. So, in some ways, um, and at least this is the argument that some of the scholars and historians make, is that the appeal of it was that it was cheap, 
cheaper than other modern Western medicines. And it also gave a way, gave a sense of being modern without being colonized. So looking for German medicine rather than uh, British medicine was a way for Indians to, to um, you know, promote their health. Plus, indeed, it's quite cheap. And slowly, uh, what I discovered in my fieldwork is that many Indians don't even know where homeopathy came from. Right. They strongly believe that homeopathy is Indian medicine. Is right. It? Yeah, wow. yeah. Which was which, which was very interesting to see that the medical plurality that we talk about as academics is just a way of imposing our understanding because we read the history, you know, we know where things come from. But for many people, that plurality does not exist. There are no separate boxes and boundaries. You know, they could easily go to an Ayurvedic practitioner and ask for a homeopathic medicine. Um, at least in, in my field sites, that was quite common that doctors themselves would mix and match medical systems just you know to cater to um do to to cater to patients and patients themselves would not you know when i told them for example i was interested in meeting uh, an ayurvedic doctor they would say yeah i've got one i go to them every day you know every week yeah and they'll take me to the ayurvedic doctor and it would be written a homeopathic clinic so for right. them, there were no boundaries. They, they were not particularly interested in separating medical systems. They just wanted to, tr to find a trustworthy doctor. And what that doctor practiced of, was of no concern, you know, was no, not, not an important question to them. It was a personal relationship with a doctor which mattered more than what the doctor had qualification in. And the efficacy of the treatment rather than the yeah. theoretical, the, the theoretical uh, approach of the particular yeah. medicine. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. what you're saying is fascinating. There is no self consciousness about the pluralism. You know, it is all medicine. Yeah, yeah, indeed. It's all medicine. Um, I think for a long time, they didn't even understand what I was asking until it hit me one day that, oh, they think differently. I read all of this. I know that homeopathy came from Germany. They don't know. And they don't care. Some of them do. Okay. I also have to qualify that. There are various approaches and there are people who do uh, care where medicine comes from. And for them, it's still important that homeopathy is German, which also for them adds validity and efficacy to the medicines that they're taking. Uh, or for some people, it's very important to use only Ayurveda because that's where they're that's how they imagine their heritage and that's how they think about themselves, you know, as proud Hindus. Um, but for, for many people, there is no difference. And, and I was a huge part of my dissertation was devoted to understanding the reasoning behind creating the, those boundaries or, or blurring those boundaries. So how do people choose to make an effort to separate Ayurveda from homeopathy, from Yunani, from something else, and be committed to only one system, or why certain people do not see those boundaries, do not wish to see the, those boundaries, or do not even care. You know, they just use freely medicine in general without dividing them into cultural and historical uh, systems. Yeah, so the boundary you, making, yeah. Have you some tentative uh, conclusions then? 
on on that. You know, why do they choose to to make boundaries or to ignore them? Um, yeah, I mean, as any answer, it's a very complicated one. It has to do with a number of factors, um, and we're not sociologists who can do a statistical analysis, right? And say ninety percent of the time people do this. But what I found is that. There were many factors, including um, a social class and, and the income bracket, as well as exposure to English language and uh, reading on, um, you know, kind of participating in the global discourses on wellness and holistic medicine and natural ways. Um, who so there, there were certain um, people I met who were very interested in 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 you know going back to the roots. Or, or, or going back to the nature, and there were Anglophone, middle class, upper middle class Indians who um, felt that this was Ayurveda and yoga, that was the right way to do. There were some also who were very resistant to that and, and, you know, talking about science. So usually people who, are, who have traveled, who were exposed to different ideas, so they would try to they would try to separate you know they would try to maintain those boundaries and patrol them very strongly um but not all middle class people would do that uh for some it was still unimportant and if they just had a doctor that they trusted there is a lot of you know it's a family uh there's this term okay let's not go into that but (laughs) Uh, there are multiple factors. In some ways, you just follow what your family used to do. Um, so you, you believe in the practitioner rather than in medicine or medical systems. Um, that, that would be a very... Venera, this, this is a fascinating discussion. <laughs> I think I could uh, talk to you for another two hours on this. Yeah, I, I, yeah. But, but we are close to having to wrap up. So I'll, I'll just ask two more questions or at least sure. two more topics to cover before we, we conclude. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with the first. And the first is that I, I see that your research has now moved on. I yes. mean, since coming to Hong Kong. Uh, may, maybe you can talk a little about that. Yeah, so now I, I mostly, um, I'm, I'm still continuing some aspects of my previous doctoral work, but now I, I'm more interested in migration, transnational migration, and how people think about themselves as a result of that migration. Mm. Um, and since I'm, you know, I've been working on India for so long. Uh, I started looking into an Indian community, or rather I have to say Indian communities, mm. because there's so many of them here in Hong Kong. And, and I, first I wanted to understand the diversity of these communities. Historically, when they came to Hong Kong or still coming to Hong Kong, where they all settle, what they do. Um, do they all interact? Um, you know, are there any kind of tensions, rivalries, or, um, 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 you know, like, com- like sense of unity among all these different communities. And when I say different, they, they speak different languages. They come from different parts of India. They came at different times to Hong Kong. They belong to different class, uh, and other uh, background groups. Um, yeah. And they, they occupy different professions. So I, I, I became quite curious to study them, uh, and their interactions and also how they feel about Hong Kong. So when the political and when the social movement happened here and COVID happened, I wanted to understand how they were impacted and how um, 
and whether they did anything that um, would show their, um, I, I guess an easy way to, to put it would be to say, I was interested in the notion of home, whether they feel Hong Kong is home and what needs to be done for them to feel at home or how, are they still connected to India and how do they bridge these different uh, allegiances and interests and loyalties uh, to different places. But from there, I moved to a new area of research now. I look at the newcomers, Indians who come either directly from India or through a third country, that might be a UK, Australia, France, United States, and they come here for lucrative jobs. Right. And my major question was triggered by a conversation with, um, with a person who uh, works in a big bank. So he occupies quite a, quite a well-paid position with, uh, with a corresponding lifestyle, you know, and a good, luxurious, um, you know, living. But he told me, you know what, I'm not an expat, I'm brown. And I was like, wait, what do you mean by that? Mm. I was like, yeah, you know, like expats are those white people who, you know, they come here for corporate jobs, but uh, they we're not the same. I'm also in a corporate job. I also came on the same visa. I get paid the same salary, but I'm not treated the same way because I'm brown. So I became, I became interested in the intersections of race and class, looking at how Indian high-paid, high-earning Indians uh, think about themselves after they've um, arrived in Hong Kong and, you know, in terms of um, uh, whether they try to change their, their perception, their perception of themselves. And are they even aware of how, you know, Hong Kongers might think about South Asians because we do have a, a community of South Asians who settled in Hong Kong a while ago. So it's, you know, there are certain ideas and, and perceptions that exist. Um, Professor Matthews wrote about Chungking Mansion, which is a, you know, a, a building here where you can find a lot of South Asian restaurants and uh, shops. And uh, so I was, I was kind of uh, looking at, I was looking at studying up rather than right. studying down, looking at, yeah, yeah. Right, right, yeah. We, we, th- that's fascinating. You've, you've covered your, basically your life in anthropology <laughs> since you began. So I think it would be appropriate, a nice way to conclude if uh, you could tell students or mm. prospective students what they can get from anthropology, you know, in our times, in these uh, trying times. Maybe we can end on that, Manira. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think anthropology can give you so much that I don't even know where to start. Um, first of all, I think anthropology gives you hope. Why I say that is because anthropology teaches you how resilient people are, how in various circumstances, in various geographical zones, in various political regimes, in various, I don't know, um, historical conditions and all of that, we all, you know, we all find ways of being humans, of being kind to each other, of, of, of uh, having, finding meaning in our lives. I think hope is something that I definitely get a lot from studying 
or talking to people, right? I don't even like the word studying because I love interactions. I love every uh, conversation that I have with a person from a background I didn't know before. And it's always a way to look at the same human condition from a different perspective, right? It highlights, sometimes it highlights how lucky I am, how times, sometimes it highlights how different I am. And sometimes it, you know, just helps me to go through the day. Um, and also, so in addition to hope, I think anthropology is very important because it teaches you to be kind. Uh, when you realize that there are multiple ways of being, you know, of doing the same things, of, of, um, of just being in this world, I think you're getting, you're becoming a little bit kinder to everybody, right? You, anthropology teaches you to respect those differences um, and also to be kind to yourself as well which is important in this trying times, as you said, right? We can be a little bit lonely and isolated. Uh, anthropology ha- helps you to travel when you can't, you know? It helps mm. you to meet people from different places when you can't go to those places. It helps you to relieve different lives when you have only one yours. Yeah, right. I, I, I think this is very, very, this is a bright side, an important bright side of anthropology of our discipline. Indeed, so important, so important to have uh, different ways of uh, at least appreciating the life that we, you know, that we have. Yeah, um, and maybe it sounds cliche, and I'm sure a lot of anthropologists say the same way, the same thing, but it is indeed very important, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we are, I think maybe actors can tell you similar, right? When they try to live the lives of their characters, they're almost, they're like, they live double lives or Mm. triple lives. Mm. And I feel like anthropologists, we live triple lives or, or, you know, (laughs) 10 different lives through, through the people we come across. Wonderful. I I think that's a very encouraging note, uh, you know, for anyone listening in. Um, I hope so. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Venera. Thank you too, Dungying. It was a pleasure. It was a wonderful talking to you. So we'll we'll, um, end the conversation now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please follow the department's Facebook page and feel free to share and comment on the post. We also welcome suggestions and ideas for the next podcast series. Thank you. Till next time.